What you're trying to do by driving that awareness is to actually drive some sort of desire on the part of those stakeholders to either engage with you or with the solution or learning just more about the value it is or isn't at. In order to make that awareness and desire stick, you have to keep reinforcing it. So you have to keep reinforcing that message. And one of the best ways to reinforce that message is to be able to articulate what your solution is delivering to their business in terms that are very, very important to them. Gamesight presents the Game Changer Podcast with host Adam Joseph. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of the Gamesight Game Changer Podcasts. I'm Adam Joseph, your host and the Senior Director of Customer Success at Gainsight. So in today's episode, we're going to discuss a topic that I think will resonate for anyone who has to deal with multiple personas across your customer base, which in my experience is pretty common. So with that holding true, one of the biggest challenges that you've got to overcome is how can you deliver and demonstrate business value to completely different personas who might have a completely different idea about the value that they're looking for? Indeed, and this is quite common in my experience, the person actually bought your product might not actually ever use it or understand what value other teams are getting from it. So how can you overcome what we're terming today as the outcome gap? I'm delighted to say that joining me to discuss this topic is someone who I've known for many, many years, and I'm fortunate enough to call both a peer, someone I hugely respect in the world of customer success, But someone who I'm very fortunate and lucky to say is a good buddy of mine, Rav Daliwal, who is the investor and venture partner at Crane Venture Partners. Rav, a very, very warm welcome to you. Hi, Adam. Thanks for uh, having me on the show today. Very excited to catch up with you. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I'm sure many people listening to this have heard you speak on many other podcasts or seen you present in the pre-pandemic todays in person. But just in case they haven't, do you want to just give a brief introduction to yourself for everyone listening? Sure. Maybe I'm in danger of being uh, dangerously overexposed, but I'll do that. <laughs> I'll do that anyway. As you mentioned, my name's Rav. I semi-jokingly describe myself as a recovering software executive. So I spent about 25 years in enterprise software various sort of customer and sales focused roles. And then the last sort of 12 years was all in fast growing startups. One went acquired and two went public. And where I find myself today is in the world of venture capital as a venture capital investor, focusing specifically on looking at very, very early stage companies in Europe that are building enterprise data products. So I often say to people, I've gone from being in the customer success business to the founder success business. And that's kind of what I do now. Yeah, I remember actually the first time, Rav, I think you and I at least presented together was that I came and presented to your team at Slack back in the day. Yes, and that's right. I still cherish the uh, pair of socks that you gave me. I still like to put them on and it always reminds me back of one of the great advantages to doing this kind of job is that you get loads of great swag and my, my <laughs> Slack socks are one of my most prized assets. So Fantastic. <laughs> I always think of you in glowing terms just because of that alone. But anyway, I always like to kick off if anyone listening to this podcast will know and, and do a, what we generally determine as an icebreaker question. One of the challenges that I set Rav before today's podcast 
was yeah i'd love to know and we haven't prepped this so i'm really i'm as keen as anyone else listening to find out some of rav's top three predictions for customer success in the future i mean if nothing else even just the world it's very difficult to predict anything given how changing everything is but if you had your customer success crystal ball rav and thought about where we might be a year two five years in the future what, what do you see as your top three predictions what a great question well i think in the short term in the short and immediate term one of my predictions i would say adam is that Founders and companies and investors will still struggle to define what we mean by customer success. You may have heard me speak many times about the fact that one of the challenges is there isn't a standard degree definition. But I think in a more short to medium term as well, another prediction I'd have is that the community of success practitioners will continue to get bigger and grow stronger. One of the key strengths of the profession is the community around it. And I think my final prediction, and I'm starting to see this really, really materialize, is there's going to be more and more purpose-built technology for CS use cases. So as a, an individual angel investor, I'm seeing an awful lot of people getting in touch and saying, hey, I'm building X, Y, Z for CS particularly. So I would say those are the three things that I would predict in the sort of short to medium term. And just on that first point about defining what CS is or indeed it isn't, I'd certainly recommend a a blog that you wrote probably a little while ago now about customer success being the department of everything and the dangers of that. Given it was so closely alluded to your first point there, do you just want to talk about what you meant by saying, you know, customer success can be the department of everything very briefly? Yeah, sure. So I think the um, challenge is that what it takes to make a customer successful is highly contextual. It's going to vary from business to business and from product to service. And so as a result, what will often happen as companies start to gain traction and grow, and certainly as an early stage investor, this is something I spend a lot of time helping founders try to avoid, is that you optimize for this production line of sales and marketing, you get some traction, and then you get a lot of these unmet or unanticipated needs occur from your customers that you hadn't really thought about because you were too busy figuring out the product and how to sell it. And typically those unmet or unanticipated needs don't have an organizational owner. Yeah. And so what can often happen is you create a customer function, a success function, purely out of reaction to saying, well, these things need to be done. They don't have an owner. And as a result, over time, that can start to compound because what the CS team is will try to do quite rightly is to go, well, okay, we have to own these things. And some of these things may be gaps in the organization or gaps in the product or gaps in how we sell. And they're at the sort of at this end of this, what I call go-to-market production line, trying to fix those. And then that unintentionally masks that from the rest of the organization. And so structural deficiencies in the business can often go unresolved, which in turn hinders the company's ability to grow. So that's a very sort of high-level summary of the article. Yeah, <laughs> that's a trailer. For, but I'd highly recommend, I know you've spoken about this on other podcasts, but I highly recommend that everyone go and check it out and read it because it really helped describe some of both the, the challenges and also the benefits of customer success. As a kind of first, normally I just ask the icebreaker question, but I said to arrive, I'd put in my top three predictions for customer success as well. So just three here that I've kind of jotted down is one, I think the exponential rise of the chief customer officer role I'm always delighted. I think when I see the role, because it really tells me two things. One is just how important customer success is to the strategic direction of that business and having a seat there, a peer role to having alongside the, you know, the chief revenue officer, the chief marketing officer, and so on and so forth. But also, I think what it says to the customers, it's very easy as a glib statement to say the customer is at the heart of what we do. 
But sometimes when CS reports into other types of functions, sometimes the voice can be diluted somewhat. So I think having that CCO role is something we're, we're seeing more and more here at Gainsight with both our customers and the prospects that we speak to. And I think will continue to be a trend that will, will continue to grow over the next few years. I think the second key area for me is, is all around the, the role of CS ops, customer success operations. So it's been really interesting, really, as a few years ago, the only role in town when it came to customer success was customer success management. But now it diversified into separate specialist roles. And I think one of the most important ones is CS ops, people who can make sure that the CS team have from a a tooling and a programmatic perspective, everything that they need to be successful, as well as help run some of the one-to-many programs are so important in terms of scaling your CS offering. And then lastly, the third one for me was all around product-led customer success. The notion of turning your own product or solution into a virtual CSM. Now here at Gainsight, we have our own PX solution, but just knowing that this kind of alignment between customer success and product, both in terms of how those two functions work together, but also how that's manifesting itself in the product itself. For me, is I've seen some amazing applications of that already, and I think that will continue to be a trend that we'll see develop over the next few years or so. 100% agree. It's interesting you, you mentioned about ops. I had an intern working with me last year for a few months, and she was fantastic. And we actually the idea of the internship was to help really bright people go to market roles in good companies. And she's actually taken a, a CS ops role oh, in a fast-growing software company. So just as a, an example there, I would 100% agree that that's going to be a key role moving forward. Perfect, perfect. All right, well, let's kind of get into the main topic and discussion of today, which is all around what I described earlier as the, as the outcome gap. And there is, as I see it, a chasm between sometimes the different personas that you might work with. There are so many different personas from a, a C-level executive who most likely is the signatory on different deals and the budget holders, all the way down to individual contributors, team leaders, managers, administrators, and so on and so forth. Everyone has a very different idea when they have that, you know, they might be using the same software, but what they term of success could be very different for each one of those personas. So you get these gaps arrive. So in your eyes, Rav, what do you think causes some of these gaps between what the outcomes that these different personas are expecting? And, and what can we do to help maybe close that chasm, as I described it, in terms of what they're looking for? It's a great question, Adam. And I, and I love the way the fact that you've broken it up into two parts there. I think the root causes of I described it, and we've spoken about this in the past, as the buyer-deployer gap. So, mm-hmm. you know, how big is or is there a gap between the people who are buying the software who have these specific outcomes in mind and the deployers and the users of the software? And I think the, the reason that happens is simply the way that we historically structure and organize companies. And it's funny, I was just noting down there while you were speaking the question, I've worked in some companies whereby even though the company got sort of, you know, to from I was a second, third employee and it became like a 2,000 person employee. Over the five years, I went from one step to the CEO to two steps to the CEO. And then I've worked in other companies where giant global multinationals, where if you look to the org chart, I was 86 steps away from the CEO. <laughs> if you think about trying to sell software in those two environments, two steps away from the CEO, I'm going to probably be involved in that decision, have a much clearer understanding of, why we're buying it, what's the risks in not buying it, what we're going to try and achieve with it. Whereas 86 steps away, probably have no visibility and no understanding at all. And so I think organizational structure and size of organizations is essentially why we see that problem. And I think that problem gets compounded with really part of what I would suggest as maybe an answer is the way that we sell 
differs very greatly depending on the people we're selling to. So if your customer acquisition model is like a free trial or a freemium, that's more like selling to one person or a limited group of people, maybe one buyer and then procurement. Mm-hmm. If I'm selling company-wide, enterprise-wide solution to a giant organization, that's selling to multiple people. There's probably going to be 15, 20 people who have to be bought along in that process in order to close that deal. And so what we tend to do is, and the way I always like to describe it is, if you think about selling a software deal as a three-legged stool, the customer is the seat of the stool. One of those legs we have to do is a commercial leg. So that's our account execs, our AEs. They are understanding the pain point, understanding the buyers, working out who the stakeholders are, do they have budget, what's their, how do they procure, et cetera. And the really good salespeople sometimes have to teach the buyer how they do their own procurement because sometimes big companies don't even know how their procurement went. There's another leg to that stool, which is, I, I call it the technical or security leg. That's typically our solutions engineer. So they're actually demonstrating to the customer that the product does what we say it does and that it will solve their problems and this is how, that it meets their requirements around administration and security, et cetera. Now, most people leave it there. They feel like, well, we've done the commercial qualification and discovery. We've done the technical qualification discovery. Off we go. Now, if this is a three-legged stool, it's only got two legs. I don't want to sit on it. It's not very stable, (laughs) right? And so I think part of the solution here is to add a third leg. So in parallel, we do deployment discovery. We actually, in parallel to the commercial and parallel to the technical product, we actually try to understand and do discovery about how does this customer typically deploy software, who's going to be involved, what skills do they have, and do those skills match what we need, what timeline are they working towards, and what the desired business outcomes are. Because what we may have to do when the deal is closed and we're working with the deployment team is to restate what those outcomes are and get them brought in to the fact, or if we discover there's gaps when we do that deployment discovery, the team doesn't have the right skill or they have the right availability, we can at least start working with our buyers to start closing some of those gaps. And I think finally, also for the deployment team, whether that's CS or services, to actually have some form of relationship with the buyer, so they're known to the buyer, so that if there is a problem when we get around to deployment or onboarding, they have a route of escalation back. because. Part of the challenge is if you sell very high up in an organization and deployment's happening much further down, let's say I'm selling at the C-suite and I'm 84 runs down with the people that I'm working with, if they are often people who have, and I'm putting in air quotes here, they've been volunteered by the organization to do this deployment with you. And they may not know why it was purchased, what the outcomes were, the risks in not using the solution. And they're doing this on top of a very, very busy day job. And that's where you'll often find CS people are burning time, either trying to find people to work with or trying to engage the people who they're supposed to work with or even reselling them on the solution. So if the CS function had a relationship with the buyer, they were known to the buyer, they could go back up the chain and say, hey, look, we've identified some blockages here. How can we work with you to get those sorted out? Because as you know from your experience, Adam, the software not getting deployed is always the vendor's fault, <laughs> right? So uh, always, that's the default position. Yeah, that does ring a bell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so doing that parallel discovery, and it should be parallel, it should be done at the right time because we do not want to slow the deal down. We do not want to create any obstacles to getting the deal closed, but there's going to be a certain natural point 
probably towards the middle to the end of that deal cycle of coming in and doing that discovery and actually putting in mitigation and building that relationship with the buyer. So I think that's what the cause is. And that's, I think, one thing I've seen work very well as a potential solution in helping us to close that buyer deployer gap. I love the analogy of the three-legged stool. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here and I'm going to try and think about some things that might cause the stool to wobble a bit or even fall over completely. So, I mean, what you're saying makes complete sense, but let's kind of fast forward a year or two down the line. Perhaps, you know, it might be a the renewals coming up, but companies, employees, the contacts who you engage with are changing so regularly. And, and obviously executive change is always can play a big part in unexpected churn as well. So if the company that your customer has inextricably kind of changed since day one, you know, they've got new offerings, they're a different kind of business, maybe they've gone through some M&A activity, the individuals that you're working with are different, indeed your company's different, you know, the company that they bought from back in the day and who you are now are, are very, very different. So that could start to cause the stall to start wobbling and fall over. How do you as a CSM who might be obviously working more on the nurture stage of the relationship, A, how can you keep track of those changes? And B, how do you overcome them and make sure that this outcome gap doesn't grow even larger? Because at the time of purchase, and I remember reading in the original customer success book, the analogy of the two boats in the water, right? When you're at the time of purchase, those two boats are almost next to each other. And then over time in the relationship, you let go of those two boats and they drift apart. And the longer the drift is, the harder it is to bring them back together. And then in this discussion, the bigger the outcome gap would be. How would you resolve that, Rap? I don't think there's one simple, easy answer to that, Adam. But I think overall, the way I think about it and the way I talk to founders about it is to say, actually, the core skill set with selling to and managing customers and growing yourselves as a company is actually change management because that's really what you're doing. You're selling software, you're introducing a change into the customer's business. And so from a CS perspective, we tend to think of change management as being the behavioral changes we want to drive to the people who are deploying the software. And going back to that buyer-deployer gap, what we also really need to do is continue to do change management with the buying group, you know, those people who made the decision, or those people who have replaced the people who have made the decision. And so one of the things that you want to be doing is assuming that you either have some relationship up at that level or your stakeholders at the deployer level are keeping you abreast of that or they are letting you know or you're finding out through them that there are changes, is first of all, you have to drive awareness of your solution to those new stakeholders. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is why we were originally purchased. This is the risks to your business in not using our solution. And you have to keep driving that awareness. What you're trying to do by driving that awareness is to actually drive some sort of desire on the part of those stakeholders to either engage with you or with the solution or learning just more about the value it is or isn't adding, right? And so I think that's one thing that you need to continually do because in order to make that awareness and desire stick, you have to keep reinforcing it. So you have to keep reinforcing that message. And one of the best ways to reinforce that message is to be able to articulate what your solution is delivering to their business in terms that are very, very important to them. So if you're understanding from either talking to your stakeholders or looking at company reports or social media is that the business is really, really uppermost in mind is cost savings and efficiency, can you quantify how your solution is feeding into that top of mind 
business goal. Or if the goal of the company is, well, really, we need to retain talent and employee sentiment's really important to us. Can you correlate, even if it's qualitatively with quotes and keep sending that up and go, let's just driving awareness with you about how we're helping employee sentiment. So it's actually doing change, not just the change management involving getting people to use the software, but it's change management through awareness and communication and giving them knowledge about how the solution is actually adding value to their bottom line with those other stakeholders as well. And one thing you could do with your, assuming you have a good working relationship with your deployers, is make part of the cadence you have with them, reassessing the stakeholder map. Hey, these are all the stakeholders we have that we've agreed. Are these all still the same people? Oh, this person's changing or there's been a reorg. And make that maybe part of your cadence. And I think the reason why sometimes that doesn't happen, going back to your first question, is we don't have a relationship at that level. There is a giant rift between the buyer and the deployer because we didn't really do any deployment discovery. That started after the contract got signed. And the interesting thing with selling to the executive level is, and I've seen this happen time and time again, they suffer from what I call deal fatigue, right? Mm. So just getting a deal done, in a, especially in a large company, is an awful lot of work. It's an awful lot of meetings, calls, procurement. So once it's done, they go, right, I've handed this off now, I'm on to the next thing. And bearing in mind, you're probably one of 20 vendors that they're dealing with on all sorts of different solutions. So I think that's why it's important to do that deployment discovery, build those relationships. Yeah. Think about change management, not just in terms of with the people you're working with, but with that buyer group, and then just keep reassessing whether the stakeholders have turned over or there's been or been reorged so that you can reach out to them and continue reinforcing the message. I think you've made some fantastic points there. Just to kind of reinforce some of them from based on my experience, definitely executive alignment, stakeholder alignment is vital. And that goes from the CEO to CEO relationship all the way down to the C, you know, the CSM and, and yeah. the primary concepts that they will have and then everything in between. And then actually, you know, this is a primary use case of Gainsight being able to track not only who those peer-to-peer relationships are, but how often you're meeting the types of conversations that you're having. And that should have a direct influence to both your scorecard and could be a great leading indicator KPI as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you just the point you made there on exact to exact relationships is key. Because that's the one that often gets overlooked because you're stuck down there with the deployers and the users, you know, maybe at level 84 of that 86 level hierarchy. Yeah. There's nothing stopping you drafting something for if you're key stakeholder decision maker is the chief product officer, go to your VP product, draft them something, go, can you send it to this person? Absolutely. It's one peer talking to another peer. The other area, again, you can track this as well, and it will be should go into your scorecard as well as being a leading KPI, is do you have, I mean, we talked about before in qualitative or quantitative terms, do we know what the expected outcomes are that our customers are looking for? Because all too often, you know, I've seen this as well, that Sometimes we hear from a customer something that's so subjective, it's impossible to know whether it's been achieved or not. So do we have something actually we can measure ideally to say, look, this is where you are now and this is the desired state that you want to be? Have we put that into something that we use all the time, a success plan? I'm sure that's a term that will be familiar to many as well, a way to be able to document exactly what those expected outcomes are and the tasks and objectives that we're going to put in to help us achieve that. And then what did that result in? And then finally, I think this is you know something else I think will be really familiar to everyone listening in, and it's the notion of an executive business review. And sometimes the word executive kind of gets stopped off because the people that turn up to them are the same people that you speak to regularly anyway. But clearly in a multifunctional hierarchical business, 
that you're serving as a customer to bring these kind of personas together and be able to present back what the value is that they're achieving or where they are on that journey, as well as the goalposts are always moving and making sure you're not caught out if the customer's now got a different idea about what that quantifiable success looks like. You need to be able to capture it on a regular occasion. So being able to really put the executive back into an executive business review, I think is really, really important as well. Would you go along with all of that as well, Rev? Yeah, I think two points I'd add to that, Adam, is I think the one of the biggest challenges you've highlighted there is, you know, just how do I prove the value of the thing that I've delivered? We know it's adding value, but how do I show that or prove that? And I think sometimes, and you reminded me there, when a buyer or a customer just has something very kind of vague or incredibly high level, we want to collaborate better or we want to avoid duplication. These are very high level goals. Sometimes you have to help deconstruct it for them yeah. and actually educate them on what the metrics are that matter. So I worked in one company where I had a team come up with a reference list of, we called it metrics that matter. And so when we say to the customer, okay, well, you want to drive efficiency. We feel like these five metrics fall into that bucket. Which of these are the most important to you? And so you're kind of making it easier for them to point out what it is that they are looking for as an outcome. And so I think that is one thing that's worth thinking about is you may have actually far more control and influence over the target that you're aiming for, then you realize because oftentimes you have to educate the customer on what outcomes are important. It's so funny you say that, Rav. At Gainsight here, we do the same thing. We call it operationalizing outcomes or O2 is the acronym. And it's exactly the same ethos of what you're saying. That's brilliant, that the fact that you do that. I think more and more people would benefit from actually coming and saying, well, our position is that these are the things that matter and we want to test that with you and then agree which ones are important to you, and that's the target we'll aim for. I think on the other thing with the executive business review, I always look at reviews or think about them like doing the washing up. If you don't do the washing up for a long time and you're having your soup with a ladle, that's a sign you've left it too long. It's better to wash up as you're going along. And I think when it comes to executives, I'm using that analogy because I don't think you should just wait for a quarter or whatever it is, four months, and then try and get executives in the room. As part of that change awareness, you need to be drip feeding them stuff on a much more frequent cadence, even though it may be a smaller amount of information, because they're never going to come to a review if they don't know who you are, don't know why we're using the software, don't know what value it's adding. You need to figure out some ongoing drip feeding of communication and awareness to build a desire to come to a review that you're running. Because otherwise, what will happen, they'll get to the budget planning cycle and they'll just be on the spreadsheet looking for things to knock off. And if they go, well, I don't know what this is. I went to the review. The review seemed like a waste of time. I'm going to knock this off the spreadsheet. And as you said earlier, I mean, you could be one of 20, 30 different third-party software solutions that they're using, all of which are probably saying, come to my EBR. So I think it's a point very, very well made. And I'm the best thing since sliced <laughs> exactly. right? like, yeah. you know, Find another way or find some other channels, essentially, yeah. on a more drip, sort of drip, drip, drip feed basis to build up to a review rather than, oh, the sink, I can't pile anything more in the sink now. I'm going to have to work my super Yeah, no, it's a great point. Rav, as always, I always get so much out of every conversation that we have, and today's no different. A huge thank you on this discussion, which I hope has been valuable to everyone listening in. Thanks so much for joining us today. My absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Adam. It's been great to catch up with you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gainsight Game Changer podcast. Please follow, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about all of our episodes, please visit Gainsight.com.
This podcast is produced and edited by StudioPod. To learn more about their work, go to studiopodsf.com.